0: yes for there is nothing else. you've already been to you today our come along quietly or not
1: you can have all the talent in the world and never get anywhere so Run, long. Long and hope. let you bite the and now without further ado loud hello folks This is Albert Shivers, and you're about to listen to episode 15 of the Planet Shivers podcast. On this episode, I'm going to be interviewing visual artist Don Wilson, and I'm joined by Isaac Wilson on sound. Um, A couple of things to go over before we get to the guest. Um, I had my New York City art show, which was a combination art show and fashion show for the new fashion line for women, Main Couture. And um, I'm gonna be working on getting the creator of Maine Couture on the show very soon. So look out for that. Also, I was recently interviewed about myself and my art. And you could read that interview online at ArtFix Daily. I believe the title of the piece is conversation with um what is it conversation with millennial illustrator albert shivers that was their choice of title yeah but you know it is what it is it's out there you know better than nothing so let's get right to it um this interview with don is probably going to be broken up into several parts um isaac don and i spoke at great lengths about his entire life in art as well as some life events that are just as interesting than his art. You know he's just a very interesting dude who's lived a full life and um, was comfortable enough to sit down with Isaac and I and talk about it. Geez it was such a cool honor to, to have him do it and just for him to tell a story and go figure It's Isaac's Grandfather. Let's get to it. Also, please forgive any bonks and boinks in the sound as it goes. I'm here with my buddy Isaac Wilson on sound. And today we are on location in Easton with a guest that we've both really, really been looking forward to. Don Wilson, thanks for doing the show.
0: Uh, Thank you, Albert and Isaac, for being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, as you know, it's important to give people um, the opportunity to share their ideas, their experiences. Mm -hmm. And I mean that all inclusively. Uh, Visual artists, filmmakers, people in the theater, writers, musicians, they're all interconnected. So it's important that we share... uh, our experiences, as I said, and uh, perhaps uh, change someone else's course in the direction yeah. they're going. So that's important.
1: Yeah. So you have been doing art for several decades. Um, and so you've invested pretty much your life into visual art. So where'd that, that love interest start for you um, to pursue visual art?
0: Okay, well, I would go, uh, I would answer that indirectly, if I could. Uh, I was four years old when I started kindergarten, and uh, we were two weeks into school in September, and uh, I noticed this boy in front of me, who were maybe 20 people in the class, I noticed boy went up to the pencil sharpener with five or six pencils, and he said they're sharpening them all, and it's kind of curious, and... As he came back, he uh, took three of them and and stabbed me with them. Stabbed me in the eye, the wrist, and the bicep. And then he went to the girl behind me and stabbed her. At that point, the teacher uh, came running down the aisle, grabbed him, and uh, took him out of the room. Um, That has to do with imagination, because I never saw that boy again. And we all kind of wonder what happened to him. So yeah. that was one thing. Um, the other thing was when we went to the doctor to have the... The, the graphite had been broken off mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. body. And so um, that's another point. Uh, if you don't mind the double entendre there. Um, I have that in my blood. They're, they decided to leave the graphite <laughs> in me rather because it was so small rather than trying to get it out. So it is in my blood. And uh, that was a part of it Um, my father always took the positive approach i uh, i had a wandering left eye because of that shortly after that so the optometrist said i should wear a patch on my strong eye which was my right eye so i wore that for about six months and so what that did my left eye had been wandering off to the left it helped to bring it back in because of peripheral vision on the right Mm -hmm. I didn't have that with a patch. So my father would say, you know, cheer up because Halloween's coming up pretty soon and you can be a pirate, mm-hmm. you know. So, so I did that, and uh, about a year later that led me to uh, drawing pirate ships and other mm-hmm. sailing ships. So that was kind of the beginning of a conscious effort to do my own work. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, one thing informs another thing, as they say. Gotcha. And uh, so that did.
1: But well, uh, that's quite the circumstance, though, to, to get you there. Yeah. Being, yeah, yeah, yeah. being stabbed by another kid. Yeah. Uh,
0: I wanted to mention a couple people in my family. Uh, one's my grandmother on my mother's side. Her name was Annalie, and she had 12 grandchildren, I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And she... Made a, a full size patchwork quilt for all of us. And she was born in 1880. I didn't realize this later, but she was a contemporary of Piet Mondrian, who was well known for his squares and rectangles and black lines. Right on, yeah. And I was just thinking how, you know, women at that time, when she was making these and, and prior, uh, weren't typically recognized for what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was always, I still have that, of course, and a lot of my cousins uh, do have that. Uh, Did she
1: do, was she artistic also? She was,
0: no, she had no formal training. She was a housewife, she was a farmer's wife, and she was very, uh, very intelligent, very thoughtful, but uh, she was a practical person also, so, yeah. Uh, I also wanted to mention my uncle, Elmer Lee, uh, he was born in the 1880s and he lived until 1982. Um, I, I always think of war and peace with him. He was a carpenter by trade. The first thing that he, a major project he was involved with, was uh, building Fort Dix in New Jersey, in the Pinelands, uh, because they were training our troops to learn how to kill people in warfare, and they were being shipped over to France during World War I. And, well, that's a whole other story there. But five years later, he had an opportunity to work on the Princeton University Chapel, which is it's a um, Gothic style church. Really, it's quite a large church. He was a carpentry foreman on that job from 1922 to 1925. But um, it's a it's a work of art from the inside and the outside, and it's still there. Um, that's,
1: that's what I'm going to like four or five years
0: ago, right? Yes, yeah, we were in there. Yeah. It's a beautiful place to uh, just chill out and meditate. And uh, I used to go there occasionally when I was a kid for services, but that was, uh, that's always an inspiration. I still go there sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my older brother, Charlie, uh, he was about seven years older than me. He would talk my father and anybody else who wanted to go to New York City, this was back in the mid 50s, he was already in college. And he would talk my dad into driving us into lower Manhattan, like the village and some of the big museums. And he was very interested in uh, the abstract expressionists, Mm -hmm. like Klein and de Kooning and uh, action painters like Jackson Pollock. And then he, um, I didn't get it. I was like 11 or 12 years old, but you know, going to these galleries, and everybody was excited and looking at this stuff. And mm-hmm. I was like, you know, couldn't figure it out exactly. But uh, I used to help my brother when he would come back from these excursions. He would try to imitate Jackson Pollock. He would work in the cellar, put a lot of nails in a long piece of wood, and uh, string wire on it, and, then, and paint a city underneath, prior to that, and then drip painting on it, paint on it. And he um, was pretty successful at selling that work in New Hope. And we also would collect uh, driftwood from the river. We live right on the Delaware River in New Jersey. And he would make sculpture from that work. He would make furniture from it also and I remember he enlisted me and anybody else in the family that was available to uh, we had a makeshift workshop in the cellar so I, I would be filing with a rasp or mm-hmm. sanding but he did a lot of mobiles with fishes that type of thing and uh, he was very successful in selling that he was still in in college uh, at that time uh, my father was also named Charles influenced him of course because in 19, about 1940 or so, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, he started creating uh, clay heads, portraits, using uh, plastilina clay. So this is one, this is me in the foreground, and my sister, and he had three or four armatures, but he would, uh, once he had finished a piece, he would just change it completely remold it, and then start over. Uh, when I was at Temple, I was able to show him how to make three piece molds from the originals and then mm-hmm. do a casting of it. So the one over behind Isaac, right there, is one that he actually won an award for at Phillips yeah. Mill Gallery. And um, Charlie and I both, my brother and I both exhibited there, but uh, we never won awards there, but he, he did. So it's kind of interesting. He was uh, an amateur. Mm-hmm. had no formal training.
1: Is that sculpture of anyone in particular?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a really good question because if you look at this right here, mm-hmm. this is just kind of amorphous. It's just kind of a generalized form of a head. Right. The one right there uh, that I pointed out that is uh, of a neighbor. Oh. So he actually took photographs of her he started using the calipers to measure points between mm-hmm. outside of eye outside of eye length of nose right. and all that so that was he was really happy about that so he, he was very influential and very supportive of me when i went to college mm-hmm. um, in high school i was i had one art teacher and he was like he was good he was like three parts encouragement basically and one part criticism and he did a lot of demonstrations Mm -hmm. he was somewhat conservative in his approach at the time but that was that was typical um i got a i got a a big charge around 1960 um we had some new neighbors come in to the uh a california style house i guess that they built um the father was a lawyer. He was also involved in uh, framing artwork in Trenton. Um, his wife was an interior decorator. So she had her office in the uh, their house. And uh, that was the first time I was paid for a painting. Um, she wanted something based on an African theme. Mm-hmm. So I did some sketches. I did a fairly large painting and sold it to her. I think I got $100 or something. That was a big deal back then. Right. And, uh, yeah. So. That was impressive. So that gave me uh, uh, incentive, you know, to move on. Uh, right. I wanted to mention something again about my brother Charlie. If I could. He was the one that really uh, was very involved on a professional level with architecture and sculpture. In the late 1960s, he worked for an architect that uh, designed the old Giant Stadium. That was just torn down, I think, a year ago. So amongst his other jobs, he was a draftsman, but the other thing that he had to do was build a, what's called a presentation model that you show the client before you actually you know, make the deal done and start construction of the building.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So he and another person did it in their company, and it was basically about three or four feet long, maybe a foot and a half high, and Giant Stadium held about 80,000 people. So you can imagine this was built with uh, illustration board and straight edges and mm. a lot of exacto knife blades and glued together to look exactly like the drawings that had been done.
1: Right.
0: So I was really impressed with that. He worked on the renovation of City Hall in Philadelphia. One thing that's still in existence, which is really a uh, beautiful piece of work, it's at uh, Council Rock High School North. It's outside of Newtown, Pennsylvania. Okay. and it's about 90 feet long and about 20 feet high and he designed that um, he did some other work inside and the interior but he he designed that it was uh, on a Native American theme mm. and uh, it's really very effective really a nice piece and he, he was there actually when they were doing the the pouring of the uh, of the molds of the concrete with the rebar in it mm-hmm. um, And of course, because he was the oldest in our family, when we were playing Native Americans in the woods back when we were kids, he's the one that pointed out the six or seven young saplings that were kind of in a row. Mm -hmm. They're about 20 feet high. And so we could bend them over and stake them into the ground and then run long pieces of wood and then cover it with whatever we had tarpaulins or blankets and we would make a native american hogan so he was always out there kind of instructing us or leading us Mm -hmm. so like we had a bridge we had we had a a bridge built because we had to drag our bikes through a stream and he designed the bridge and we built it together it was like a 30 foot long wooden bridge Mm. to get from one neighborhood to the other which was very important back when you were a kid saves time and, and effort but uh I'm always grateful to him, to what he
1: yeah.
0: taught me. I'd say, yeah. Well, all of us really. Mm-hmm. My father too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were, in a sense, surrounded by art. Yeah, you know? I would say
0: that. Yeah, there were other people in the extended family. Mm-hmm. But I, that's a whole other story. Yeah. You know, right. Yeah, a lot of people. Three, you know, two or maybe three or four people that were really important. But I mentioned the, uh, the Native American hogan because looking back, I've kind of come full circle, I think, mm-hmm. because uh, the natural world was my main inspiration. I didn't right. know it at the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But um, that imprints on you, obviously. Yeah. If you grow up in a ghetto, in a city, that imprints on you, you mm-hmm. know, so that's very important but that that was the genesis of a lot of my art I think With just being aware of the natural world mm-hmm. it's a yeah
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, again I thank my father for that he was very adventurous he would take us on camping trips up into Canada mm-hmm. and New England you know, he built his own uh, box to carry all our camping equipment and then his sailboat that he built was on top of that mm-hmm. so it was six of us and a dog and all that and off into the northern part of Quebec, where there was nobody else around, <laughs> which was really very interesting. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. yeah. So you mentioned um, your high school art teacher. Um, when was it that you decided that this is what you were going to pursue? Did it start that early, or was it later?
0: Yeah, on? I was very um, oh. unsure about what direction to take. I was thinking about the military. This was in the very early. 60s, 61, mm. when I was leaving there. And uh, John Kennedy, the president at that time, had just started the Peace Corps. Mm. I thought about that. Uh, my cousin, who was my age, eventually went to East Africa, to Malawi, okay. to to be in that. He, he was in there for two years. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, needless to say, uh, because my brother had already taken that route, I... I chose to follow in his footsteps, um, everything else being equal. Uh, I went to a local community college in Trenton. That was the first two years I was there. Um, I learned about abstraction the first year there. Uh, our uh, art history teacher was from Virginia, I believe. She had a very calming voice. I remember that about her. and. Uh, she introduced us the idea of abstraction, which I didn't really know much about. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she, I think she played she had records. She brought in Stravinsky, might have been the Rite of Spring or something like that, mm-hmm. and uh, Gershwin, George Gershwin,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Rhapsody in Blue. So mm-hmm. her instructions were, interpret this music visually, and you know. So we used colored uh, pastels, large sheets of paper, and. You know, she said, yeah, the first ones will be uh, not too successful, so don't worry about it. You know, set them aside through the next one. So Mm -hmm. um, that was the first time I really uh, thought about that, the idea of uh, interpreting music in in a a visual way. Um, And, of course, maybe a year later, I I probably heard uh, Mussorgsky's piece, which was called uh, Pictures at an Exhibition, Mm -hmm. and that was based on a friend of his who was a visual artist uh, he had died, and this was a posthumous retrospective of this artist's work. Mm-hmm. So Mazorski as he was going through, looking at all these paintings and drawings, you know, why can't I, why don't I try to write a, a composition based on each of these pieces? Mm-hmm. So I guess the work was up long enough, he could do that. Right. He could go back and make notations. And of course, as you're listening to it, it shifts from Painting to painting, it's maybe in ten segments the piece of music, so okay. you can you can only just kind of imagine what the subject was. You know?
1: Right.
0: don't know. I'm sure right. somebody's probably written about that. I don't know. Um, they, this Mercer County Community College that I was at, it was a five-story. The main building was five stories, and I remember uh, we have a lot of issues. There've always been issues, but it's it's getting more. Uh, pronounced, uh, and that is uh, suicide rates with younger people, uh, teenagers today in this Mm -hmm. country. And I remember we used to eat our lunch out on the fifth floor fire escape so we could look out and see the Delaware River. And this was during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis when the Russians had moved missiles into Cuba, pointed at us, so everybody thought, hey, there's going to be this is it, it's gonna be over tomorrow, the next day, we didn't know, you know. So I remember this one friend saying, you know what, why don't we just jump off this fire escape, you know, it's like five stories down. We knew he was kind of serious, but we knew we weren't gonna do it. And then that kind of, that that passed by, so that was was good. But uh, Around that time, I was working for a framing crew. We were building houses and uh, apartment buildings, Okay. I did that for a couple of um, summers. And right in the middle of the first summer, I think, uh, I learned that um, at Princeton University, they needed a somebody who knew about slide projectors to, <laughs> to project slides. So I inquired about it, and it was this, uh, it's called the Helen Hay Whitney Foundation. They are still in existence. They basically, they have a... Uh, grants that they give to doctors and scientists to do research on health issues and so they were meeting at Princeton this particular summer and uh, there was maybe 20 or 25 doctors and uh, some of them were struggling with their English which was okay. Uh, I was in the back of the room uh, showing their slides and so there was maybe 20-25 Doctors, I think, so it was an all week event. And uh, so there was maybe four doctors would speak each day. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they gave me their stack of slides and they would nod or do this, you know, wave their hand when they wanted the next slide shown. So these doctors were all working with what's been going on for a long time, which is cancer research.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So a lot of them had, photographs taken through the microscope and I I mean, I had always seen photographs through the microscope in books, but Mm -hmm. that's a little different. They're like kind of small. So I, it just took me by surprise right away. I started to see these huge three by five images of parts of the brain or parts of the heart that were malignant, parts of them were malignant. Mm -hmm. If they were transposed into paintings, you would just say, they're abstract, right. you know. But, and I realized, well, it's just beyond our ability to see with the naked eye. And that kind of, maybe loose enough about the idea of abstraction and what that was, mm. that it's, it's valid, you know. Yeah. Whether you like it or not, it's, it's there. You know? mm. And uh, I had my first group exhibit in 1962 when I was still there at uh, Mercer County So I haven't haven't kept track, I should have, but I've probably been in about 250 art exhibits since then. Mostly group exhibits, Mm -hmm. maybe 10 or 15 solo exhibits. So uh, that's one thing to do, try to keep track of what you're doing as best you can. Be organized, that's one of my issues is organization. I tend to sometimes start things and then put it aside and start something else.
1: Can you recall what piece of yours was in that
0: exhibit? It was. Uh, it was a. Yeah, it was a poster. It, we okay. were supposed to do a poster relating to engineering, okay. the whole concept of engineering. Mm-hmm. So it was a graphic design piece. Yeah. So nothing to write home about. You know, it's But it was. Just, it
1: still but it was
0: you know, it was exhibited in a public yeah, place. Yeah. So that was. That was okay. good. Yeah. During that time too, I, I had a job doing, uh, working for a book publishing company. So, I mean, uh, just to get to the point, I think I've done maybe a couple hundred illustrations for books and calendars and so mm-hmm. forth. Some of them were relatively boring, like graphs and that kind of thing. Right. Some were more technical drawings, and some were uh, more freeform, I guess, mm-hmm. You know, where mm-hmm. I was given some leeway as to mm-hmm. the approach. And, and were the these like the
1: textbooks?
0: Yes, actually textbooks, yeah, mm-hmm. I think... High school and I think college textbooks. Yeah. And then I also, there was a theater called The Bandbox, and that's where I had a, uh, I was impacted pretty uh, significantly, I guess, and, and actually in a positive way by um, some film directors from the 1950s, and I'm mentioning that because uh, there was a place called The Band Box in Lambertville, New Jersey. The owner showed a lot of what's called foreign films, world films. Right. Right. So he would show uh, Bergman, Igmar Bergman's films, like The Seventh Seal, right. Virgin Spring, and Fellini, and mm-hmm. a lot of, and Hitchcock. And uh, I, uh, he enlisted me in designing the, the programs. He actually had a program cover for each oh, film, because wow. it would be there like for a weekend or a week, and then he'd do the next one. So right. I didn't even know if I was paid for that. I just, I just did it, mm-hmm. you know, because... I was there,
1: and were those program covers to as like in relation to the film that absolutely,
0: shot? yeah, specific films, right. yeah, each film was a new design, so cool. I don't have any of those i I can remember visually, I can bring up a couple of the images. One was about uh, vampires, I think It was a silent okay. movie okay. yeah he he reached way back, he, you know Lon wow. Chaney and some of those people, and then up up to the fifties,
1: okay, yeah. yeah that's a, a good time for a film.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah cuz people were just experimenting and trying mm-hmm. seeing, you know, uh, what could be done. Uh, yeah, I mean Bergman when he was young, he traded a birthday present with somebody in his family who had the lantern slide. He wanted the lantern slide projector
1: mm-hmm.
0: when he was like 10 years old and that's what got him started. He would put like glass negatives in or do drawings on glass and project them. Mm -hmm. and that's what got him going towards Uh, filmmaking and obviously he was a historian also he knew some of the history of the area so yeah I was there for two years I was fortunate to transfer to Temple University and um, it's called the Tyler School of Art Uh, it was someone's former estate and she bequeathed it to be used as as an art school so Mm -hmm. it was a satellite of Temple University. Was, right. Temple has about 10 schools. Okay. So that was the smallest one and the most remote one.
1: Okay.
0: And, and where uh, was that? That was in uh, Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, it's near okay. Cheltenham. It's just north of Philly. Okay. It's right on the borderline actually really. Uh, that was really a great uh, experience for me. It was a really important uh, turning point for me because um, I mean even the dean who Interviewed me. He was a very accomplished artist. I think about half the teachers were from either Europe or uh, Russia, so they had they brought their experiences with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know I had a sculpture uh, teacher who was very energetic. He was like in his probably late sixties when I was in his class, and he would bring like a cow into the sculpture studio. We had a you know, set up in a circle. Mm-hmm to do the uh, we work with clay and pasalina but um he uh i remember he would do demonstrations and he showed us some of his work and i was i, I always was going to ask him because his work was very similar to uh, Auguste rodin's work okay. the uh, french sculptor right and i never did and then i i went 20 years later i went to a reunion somebody said by the way did you know that um this teacher uh, worked in Rodin's studio the last two years of Rodin's life, so right. I didn't know that. Right. And, and you know it's just it's good to ask questions when you have the opportunity. I was too self-focused to think about asking those questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's other people too. I know somebody also said one of the te- one of my illustration teachers from Poland met um, some of the Dadaists and the Surrealists. Mm-hmm in New York City, some of the other people that were in that group in, uh, in France, and they left prior to the German invasion. They knew that that the Nazi army was approaching. Some of them chose to stay and fight with the resistance or just tolerate it. Some of them left. So obviously some of them, uh, Marcel Duchamp, I think he went also, I think he went to New York. There's a number of them. I didn't, you know, I didn't know much about them. Um, there's Kurt Schwitters. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kurt Schwitters. He wrote nonsense poetry, just totally nonsense. He was from Germany, oh, but he was in that group. I just wanted to mention. Um, I saw this film about two weeks ago. It was made in 1978. It's worth uh, looking at. It's called Europe After the Rain, and basically. Um, it traces the development of the Dadaists and the Surrealists. So, Europe after the rain. It was made in 1978. I have no idea who, who actually uh, made it. But you know, I, I I mentioned going to New York City. There was a, a painting that uh, impacted me quite a bit um, by Pavel Chelichu. It's called Hide and Seek, and I think it's in the Museum of Modern Art. It's basically a, a, a large hand which is also a tree the fingers are the limbs of the trees mm-hmm. the tree and in the negative space on either side of the tree are two faces in silhouette they're kind of looking in and then there's a small figure in the foreground kind of looking at it all mm-hmm. and uh, I, I just I just thought of that um, yesterday and I thought about Alex Gray who I took a workshop with for a week uh in the late 1980s because he there's one painting that he did that it's very similar to that and i'm not taking away from him but he's obviously very interested in that so right. it's it, it's just standing on the shoulders of other people and taking it further taking it a step right. further yeah. and that's that's important if that's what you're inclined to do mm-hmm. you know there's no harm in that and right. then you have the whole issue of forgeries that's a whole art in itself, and a whole industry in itself. Right. And that's another another time, another story there. Yeah. Didn't, but,
1: uh, didn't you, like, find one of your paintings, like, in some, like, shop, random? I thought
0: you might bring that up, yeah. <laughs> I All right. So uh, when I ended up in Long Beach, I went to graduate school there. This is getting ahead a little bit, but, yeah, I was selling work pretty regularly, like a couple pieces a month, which was good, mm. small paintings. And there was three other artists there, and they... Um, they were doing fairly well. We kind of knew each other. And um, I was there for about a year. And then one weekend, because I was going to the college at that time, so I wouldn't check in until the weekend. One weekend, I, I went there and uh, the big glass windows in the gallery front. And I was looking in, and everything is like gone. And it's mm-hmm. like the door was locked. So what happened was this guy, the owner of the gallery, basically came in one night and packed up everything in a van or a truck and took off. Apparently he went to um, San Francisco, because that's what Isaac's alluding to. Um, I was walking with a friend down the street, we're in the section where there was galleries, and so we were looking, and I looked into the window, and my friend looked, because he knew my work, and he he goes, Don, isn't that your drawing there? And I looked, and I said, yeah, that was in the Long Beach Gallery, you know. So I went in and I sort of confronted the owner who right. identified himself right. in a nice way. Right. And I started questioning him about, you know, what's the provenance of the, who's the artist that did the drawing right. in the front? And he was very evasive about it. He you know, mm. he's like, Well, oh, I don't know him that well. He's a new guy, you know, yeah. whatever. Not knowing he's yeah. talking to him. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I had so much else going on in my life then and I just... Let it go. I said thank yes, you. Right. It went on. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Well, if it's any mm-hmm. consolation that internet world is oh. even more rife with yeah. snatching artwork. I've had. I've had. You've know, had. Both of us have had art snatched. Really? Online. Yeah. yeah and, like, how do you know that? To different credit. Yeah. <coughs> really? I've Your workers it.
0: showed up with a different name on it.
1: I've either stumbled upon it myself. Mm-hmm. online, or I've had friends like you have, who've said, hey wait, here's this link Isn't the, you, you draw that and you know, it, it, oh it my gets God. to the point of what yep. can you do, yep. the only, do you, you know, like, like? Wow. Like, like I'm sitting home with the original, at least so that's my proof Right. But, you know, yeah. mm.
0: so if somebody may be using it to sell something in India or China you yeah. don't know, it's for South totally America totally
1: possible yeah
0: <sighs> uh, So, yeah, I was talking about 1966, Mm -hmm. and, uh, excuse me, if I can regress a little bit. Um, The relative value of art, I was reminiscing about this too, I'll I'll never forget it. I was, um, it was a late November in uh, 1963. I was up in a studio, a painting studio. The other end of the hallway was a drawing studio. So we were working from a live model, we were doing oil paintings, and uh, which is a good skill to learn how to do. And all, all of a sudden I started hearing all this crying and screaming uh, from downstairs somewhere. It sounded like a Greek chorus, like a, from a tragedy by Euripides or something, where the, you know, somebody's died and there's a lot of violence going yeah. on. And we were just, I mean, there was like 15 people in the room, we all kind of looked at each other. And, going on you know so everybody else kind of stood there and kind of didn't do much i ran to the stairwell and another guy ran to the stairwell and we went down young women students who were crying and carrying on and uh and some of the men too they were they were trying not to uh, show emotion but i think somebody had a transistor radio like about this size mm-hmm. they said no the, the president's been shot you know in mm-hmm. dallas so I th- you know, I thought, I knew what he went through in World War II. I thought, he's wounded. You know, he'll be all right. He'll, he'll pull through. Right. So I, I walked back out. And I'm standing looking at my painting. And I'm like, okay. So I'm doing this painting. And here's a possible major tragic event in our yeah. country. And I stood there for a few minutes. And then I went back down. The, the crying kind of subsided. Mm-hmm. Then it picked up again, and we found out he had died. You know, right. so the dean did his best. He got us together. I just left everything. I, mm-hmm. Usually, you put your stuff away, clean the brushes, and I, right, right. then go back till the next day. But the dean got everybody together in this meeting hall the next day, and he was obviously very upset. And we didn't want to believe it, but I think we had a sense that um, the country was going on a downward slope Mm -hmm. from there. And it kind of, uh, it proved out over time. A lot of good things were done also. I mean, it wasn't all negative.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Like President Johnson signed the Voting Voting Rights Act, which enabled thousands of more African Americans to vote and minorities. So it wasn't, you know, it was a mixed bag, but uh, obviously the Vietnam War is what Changed the course of our country's history. Uh, It's very unfortunate uh, in so many ways. But uh, uh, if I could pick up where Isaac mentioned about the theft of uh, my artwork in California, uh, right around that same time, Robert Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy's brother, was running for president. He was going to oppose Richard Nixon and i was living in southern california in long beach and this has to do with art another tragedy but it has to do with art keeping me from knowing something firsthand right Uh, so my neighbor one day said it robert kennedy had just won the the california primary and everybody knew that he was going to be it he was going to be the candidate right in the democratic party so my neighbor came over and he goes. Don, you know, I'm going up to the Ambassador Hotel to, to hear Kennedy's acceptance speech or victory speech, whatever you want to call it. And what did I say? I said, you know, I'm working on this project for school. I've got to get it done by Monday. And I was, you know. Right. I thought, I almost went and I didn't. So, you know, needless to say, he was in the back of the room in the Ambassador Hotel. He saw the shooting he, and the commotion, he saw two people, two people run out the back, a man and really? a woman, and the woman, he was up against the wall. He was like, I don't, he said they didn't even notice him.
1: Right.
0: But he heard her say, we got him, we got him, and they ran out the back. Wow. And he never saw them again. Mm. So he was very upset when he got back, needless to say. Uh, and I won't go into that, but that's in another episode. Right. But, uh, but again, uh, Working on art, and then something momentous that's going to change the course of the country happens. And I'm sure, obviously, I'm not the only one. Just that. Yeah. Do you remember what piece
1: it was you were working on? Uh,
0: No, I don't. Um, It ends up. uh, It was probably a graphic design project. Nothing. Nothing very significant. Other other than the teacher that was teaching it invited me and a couple of the students to a party up in North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we went up there, it was on a weekend night and, um, there about a about 120 cars parked up and down the driveway, mm-hmm. the road. Mm-hmm. And i never even found the teacher that owned the house. <laughs> she invited us, but, yeah. um, I presumed we wouldn't know anybody there. And I, you know, there's waiters going around with trays with drinks and hors d'oeuvres and all right. that it was very crowded. There's a big pool in the back. Mm-hmm. And then I started recognizing people. It was really kinda of freaky because I realized these were people that were part of the, the movie industry in Hollywood.
1: Oh wow.
0: So and this is before your time, but so I would see Burt Lancaster walking toward me and he sees that I see him and right. I recognize him. So I can't kind of ignore him. So I right. small talk with him and then wow. Shirley MacLaine was over in the corner so I went over to talk with her and she was pretty much in character. She played a lot of roles that were like her personality. Mm-hmm. So that, that was that was very interesting because yeah. you usually think of these people as just existing in their own realm or their own world right. and yeah. you never get to see them. So, so it always seems like it's the unexpected that is presented to you sometimes right. if you're not trying to find something.
1: Right. Well. Yeah. so like so being a student at that time there in the early 60s like what, what, what was what was that like you know because that was you were it was just before a, a big cultural boom was about to happen
0: right 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 um well when i was in if i could go back for a yeah, minute sure,
1: sure.
0: which i've been doing a little bit of um yeah around that time uh I was I was teaching in Trenton for one year I I did go back to Temple to get my teaching certification which is very important because that was a major part of my uh, life was teaching at some point when I came back from California Um, and I was an art director for a magazine in Philadelphia called the moderator it was a national magazine for college students and uh, there's all these spin-offs from from that in itself but uh, I had, yeah, I had about 50 pieces published in there. I basically was responsible for the layout. Um, there were, uh, one was dealing with um, the Vietnam War, and it's called the problem of being patriotic. One was dealing with uh, suicide and student stress on college campuses. There was uh, America's baby policy where you could be drafted into the army and go fight somewhere for your country but you couldn't vote because the voting age was 21. Right. But you could go in the military at 18. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a very interesting uh, experience work, working working there. That summer in 1966, before I started teaching and started working for that magazine in Philadelphia, I drove out to uh, Teton National Park in Wyoming with my cousin David, and uh, he had a job there working to maintain the park. So the plan was I would drive with him there and then I would hitchhike to California and then back to the East Coast. The reason I'm mentioning that is, you know, I hung out with him for a few days there in Wyoming and then I hitchhiked, which I really had never done much of before to California. Uh, And I met a family there that kind of befriended me. They uh, let me stay with them for a couple of days they had a daughter that was going to Long Beach State, mm-hmm. and so that was my connection with, uh, from that point I hitchhiked back <clears throat> through the Southern United States mm-hmm. and up the East Coast.
1: How, um, how long the time did that take?
0: Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I was in no particular hurry right. to get back. Probably three weeks, and I have photographs that I took on the way. I, I had a sketchbook with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I basically had a backpack, A sleeping bag and uh, you know some some food with me and I would pick stuff up along the way Uh, but I I don't recommend hitchhiking to anybody these days Mm -hmm. unless you know the people you're hitchhiking with uh, for very obvious reasons but I I was very lucky I had some situations that were dangerous and uh, one was one was kind of comical. I could do a, I, I thought about doing a painting of this. This mm-hmm. elderly man gave me a ride. This wasn't this time, but it was in the winter. I was hitchhiking back for a funeral to, for one of my grandparents. And uh, uh, he was in this little Volkswagen Beetle going up through the Rocky Mountains. And he was in his 70s, I think, then. So he, he was falling asleep. So I said, do you want to drive? I said, fine. So I was going up over the Rocky Mountains in a snowstorm, basically. Oh. And the brakes were really bad. The windshield wipers didn't work. So I had to like reach out and wipe off the windshield every so often. And of course there was no guardrails, you know, so you had to, if something was coming the other way, right. <laughs> you to just yeah. slow down, come to a stop. But you couldn't come to a stop because then you, have, you lose traction. Right. You know? Anyway, but I, I could do a penny of that. that that's, a, that's, a, that's a subject right there. Yeah. But, um, anyway uh, so getting back to this coming from Long Beach uh, I had a decision to make either maybe go in the military go in the Peace Corps as my cousin was planning to do uh, go to Canada maybe I you know uh, I wasn't raised a Quaker my my brother Charlie was very involved in the Quakers um, I was given the opportunity to go back to graduate school for a year and that's how I ended up up back in Long Beach. and So the people that I met who befriended me in Long Beach uh, were a pull to get me back there. Um, I was going to go to San Francisco State. Instead, I was accepted there also. I remember I found out about a year after I was at Long Beach State, one of the art professors and I think three of his students were arrested. At San Francisco State, because they have very sophisticated printing devices there, mm-hmm. and uh, they were duplicating either twenty or fifty dollar bills or hundred dollar bills. So I don't know how long they passed right. that money off, mm-hmm. but they were eventually captured and wow. prosecuted. You know? Yeah, wow. I was just thinking, what if I had gone there? That might have been me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, how do you mix the ink? You know, that kind of thing. Right. right. I, I didn't, so I was lucky. I know. Yeah. But uh, the painting over there that's on the wall, that's uh, called Rhapsody in Blue Green. It's a, basically an underwater scene. It has some Buddhist symbols in it. Uh, I was influenced uh, by uh, a number of things. I did a little scuba diving, not much, very little actually. But uh, Jacques Cousteau, uh, the underwater explorer, He, I, I remember, and we had a large patio outside the the campus, on the campus, overlooking the ocean. It's only like two miles away. And we used to go swimming, you know, but I was working part-time and obviously going, taking classes, but uh, he, uh, I didn't know at the time, of course, he he developed the uh, scuba diving apparatus with a a co-inventor during World War II for the French Navy. What I didn't realize at the time when he was speaking to us about his trips underwater in the different locations he went to that he had probably at that time traveled to different sites under the oceans than any other person at that Mm -hmm. time and so he would go to these same spots every four or five years and take notes of what was going on there Mm -hmm. so he was already then this is 1968 he was already bemoaning the fact that he was seeing garbage accumulate and he was seeing damage to reefs Mm-hmm. From the acidification of the ocean, right. and I remember looking around at other people that were listening, other students, and they're like, like, "What? <laughs> really? You know?" Because we at that at least at that time, I was thinking we thought of the ocean as something that could handle anything. That it was, right. you know, so massive, whatever. Yeah. yeah, so massive that it would it would handle any amount of abuse. But you know, he knew that wasn't the case.
1: You know there wasn't any benchmark at that time for like pollution
0: you know no exactly because exactly because we needed technical devices to monitor acidity or various pollutants whatever it might be mercury and so forth so somewhere somebody was doing that
1: um did you get a chance to speak with him one-on-one yeah
0: i did you know but you know it's like meeting well-known people um I, I wanted to talk to him mm. but sometimes it's like like you're asking me now it's I can say that I talked to him you know right. but but it was both okay. you know uh, but yeah I, I did I, uh, I just said a few things you know I appreciated what he was doing and right. thanked him for being there and that kind of thing yeah. um, Same with the folk singer Joan Baez uh, oh. she came to the campus the same year I think mm-hmm. with her husband. David Harris, I believe, that was her husband at the time. And she didn't play any music, which we were all kind of disappointed in, but she was basically speaking about the war uh, in Vietnam, Mm -hmm. and uh, her husband, I think it just, uh, one of a number of people that had burned his draft cards, and Uh so he was waiting to be sentenced and to start his jail sentence for for that. And, uh, but I did get a chance to speak with both of them a little bit afterwards, you know, mm-hmm. maybe 15 or 20 people would come up after and right. just chat a bit. And they were on their way to their next place, you know. Gotcha. Maybe like you and Isaac, maybe you'll, you're gonna have three of these interviews to do someday, right. you know. Right. Um, maybe not, but I hope so. Um, <laughs> yeah, the so, so they were off to the next, maybe the next right. college, you know, to speak. Right. So that, that's the impression I got. But one thing I could say about music, and I, um, you know, it's obviously very connected with the other arts. Um, I knew very little at that time about Indian music Mm -hmm. from the subcontinent. I had heard it a few times, but it was rarely on the radio. And this is back in the day when people would, you know, go around with the thumbtacks or the hammer and the nails, and they would put flyers up on telephone poles. People Mm -hmm. still do that, or bulletin boards in the school, whatever, Mm -hmm. and. so there was an ad for uh, Ravi Shankar and his musicians to play in the library mm-hmm. of all places in Long Beach. It's a small library. Right. And so I thought, I didn't know much about him, so I thought, eh, all right, I'll yeah. go. And uh, there was like seven other musicians with him. And I think there was maybe 20 or 25 people that were there to listen to him. And uh, there, there was some people doing yoga there prior to it. and I wasn't familiar with yoga either and I that was like my first exposure to that like people uh doing asanas in the in the back of the room you know postures and so forth oh whatever yeah that's interesting I didn't know what they were doing but uh so Ravi Shankar just they they were on a little dais maybe a little stage about a foot high Mm -hmm. and uh was the room maybe 25 by 40 feet something like that so we were like Six feet away from the musicians, I was just up toward the front. So we were just sitting, some people were laying down, some people were sitting cross-legged. And uh, he just explained a little bit about the history of the music. Not in a lot of detail, but uh, I did a series of drawings based on this experience. It seems like a simple thing. But they played two sets. They paused briefly for maybe a couple of minutes between the two sets, maybe 20 minutes each. And at the end of that, I was used to the idea of you know, you go to a concert and you hear an orchestra play, everybody jumps up and shouts bravo and starts right. clapping, screaming, and yeah. all that. When they finished playing, like nobody moved, nobody said anything. Mm-hmm. We were just like, we were just yeah. uh, in the zone, just right. all connected with each other. Right. And they just, you know, they just kind of looked at each other, they looked at us, we looked at them. And it was like that for about five minutes. And then we kind of, yeah. they started moving around and we started moving around. Mm. Talked to some of the musicians a little bit, I don't know. But the point I'm making is, um, I wasn't going to record stores that much mm-hmm. when I was there. So I sought out this large record store in Long Beach and I found one of Ravi Shankar's records. So I ended up, you know, how you get fixated on certain music or a certain piece of music. So I had the turntable in my apartment and I would Mm -hmm. put the record on and it was really beautiful music. And uh, I started drawing to that and just getting really, it just really helped me to focus on drawing techniques and not being distracted by motorcycles going by outside or people screaming or. While people were screaming, I would look out the window and try to right. see what was going on, but right. you know, yeah, so it was an influence on I me. And I started to learn the connectedness between uh, all the arts, uh, particularly music and the visual arts. Yeah, so they, they were very, of course, you know, happenings were a big thing in the 50s and 60s, and they still are, you right. know, and uh, installations that are going on all the time, mm-hmm. every day, everywhere, probably. And some of those have a political slant to them, some of them are more personal. Uh, I know Alex Gray started out that way, uh, doing performance pieces by himself and then later with his wife. And uh, yeah, he, he has a whole very interesting background.
1: Yeah. I know, um, my work is very influenced on music. I, I could hear a song, and it could inspire a piece that didn't exist in my mind until here in the piece of music. So, for you with with Ravi Shankar, what did did what ended up on the page or on the canvas change for you?
0: That that's a really good question. Um, I think it was probably the idea of um, the repetition of forms because in. There's a whole, just as we have a whole uh, nomenclature for you know, Western music, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, indigenous people have another set of references that they rely on to create their music. Same with Indian music, it's very structured mm-hmm. from what I understand, I don't know a whole lot about it, but uh, there are parts of the music that are repeated uh, from time to time and if I was doing kind of an abstract piece, or I would start out that way with an abstract piece, and then maybe as you look at it, you could develop it into something specific, it was that repetition. I would start to repeat forms that seemed to work and, uh, and then build off of that. Mm. And then uh, either leave it as it was, as a purely abstract form, or uh, see something in it you know, as as you might in a a piece of rough wood where you'd see a pattern in wood which would suggest a a certain idea or a composition. So I I just think it was more, like I mentioned yoga, which at that time I knew very little about. There's, you know, pranayama is the uh, very important part, which we all do, Mm -hmm. which is breathing, the breathing techniques, the different postures. So I think... uh, I think the breathing process, connected with the music, uh, helped me to maybe slow down, like not be in a hurry. You know, mm. uh, the German artist Paul Klee, he was very prolific. He he made a comment once uh, about drawings, that he said uh, a drawing is simply a line that went for a walk. Mm-hmm. You know, so and that walk can be very very long, as yeah. you know could be very short. Right. So could be uh miles and miles. Yeah. So But that that's a very good question. I oh. I, I I that's a good thing that uh all of us could do, uh, any um, anyone who is somewhat serious about their work is to kind of be self-critical or analyze what you're doing. Right. You know, not just your strengths and your weaknesses, but what's your intent? You know, where where are you where do you want to go with this yeah you know and not copying yourself that can be a trap you know where you just you say well 47 years old i really like what i'm doing and i'm going to keep doing this Mm -hmm. because maybe i don't know any better or i I don't want to get out of the my comfort zone so yeah that's that's
1: important and that's part one of the don wilson interview Part two will be coming up in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, you can check out my new Patreon page called Albert Shivers Artist, which will have updates about Planet Shivers as well as my artwork. And if you choose, you can also make a donation. Let's hit that outro music. Thank you for listening to the Planet Shivers podcast. This production and others can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Archives.org. It can also be found with video content on the Albert Shivers YouTube channel. You can find even more content on Facebook at Albert Shivers Visual Artist and on Instagram at Albert Shivers. You can find Isaac Wilson's work on Instagram at wheninzen. That's when underscore in underscore zen. Thank you again for listening and don't forget to like and subscribe.